Welcome to The Brian Buffini Show, where we explore the mindsets, motivation, and methodologies of success. Here's your coach, Brian Buffini. Well, the top of the morning to you. Welcome to The Brian Buffini Show. And welcome to the second half of our topic, The Psychology of Influence, where we've been covering the six principles of persuasion. In episode one, we covered reciprocity, commitment, and social proofing. And in today's episode, we're going to cover likability, leadership, and scarcity. This is all based on the book Influence, The Psychology of Persuasion by Robert Caldini. So first, I'd like to talk about likability. You remember Sally Field when she won the Oscar? her thought as she ran to the podium and she didn't have an acceptance speech. She held up the Oscar with one hand and she said, they like me. They really, really like me. And I thought, wow, in so many ways, that was a profound speech because so many people are looking for that Oscar, that approval, that people actually like us. Now, and many of us know it's kind of a fool's errand to constantly be seeking the approval of others. The truth of the matter is, Sally, they liked you in that role. It doesn't mean they like you all the time. And as every actress who ages realizes, hang on a second, they don't like me as much as they used to. But for that moment, they liked her. Likeability is a significant part of the psychology of influence, according to Caldini. So what do we know? We want to be liked. We're going to cover what's called the luncheon technique. And we're also going to talk about we want to do business with people we like, which I'm all in favor of and have been speaking on for 30 years. Acceptance and empathic interaction are third on Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You probably cover that in your high school. And the only things more important are safety and basic needs. So acceptance and empathic interaction is a huge deal for all of us. Michael Scott from The Office, one of my favorite quotes, says, Do I need to be liked? Absolutely not. I like to be liked. I enjoy being liked. I have to be liked but it's not a compulsive need to be liked. Well, we know that Michael Scott, as a leader, was a terrible leader because he wanted people to like him. This is like a family. We're all friends here. He wasn't a boss. You know, a comedian uses hyperbole to exaggerate. But the fact of the matter is, we've all seen this, and we've all done this. We've all done this. Sometimes my thing was I wanted people to know I was a good guy. I wanted people to know that no matter how successful I became, I came from the blue-collar world. You know, I, I was an ordinary guy. I would sometimes go to extraordinary lengths. And here's the thing. Most of the time, these things I was doing was for my need and not theirs. Sometimes we're all a little Michael Scott in our approach to be liked. Maya Angelou said, I've learned that people will forget what you said. People will forget what you did. But people will never forget how you made them feel. Now that is a different cut and a deeper cut on the whole dynamic of likability, especially when it comes to influence and persuasion. To truly empower and connect and to challenge people, to positively influence people, you have to really make a deep impression on how you made them feel. That's why this content can be used for evil. You can make people feel like crap. The most easy manipulation in the world is to make people feel insecure and then manipulate them accordingly to an action you want. Let me tell you, I've seen salespeople do this. I've seen politicians do this. And it is a short-term fix. And it is the sugar high with the nasty aftertaste. 
That's why people hate politicians, because they do this stuff all the time. It works for a while, but it doesn't work long term. Not real influence, not real persuasion. Ultimately, how do you make people feel is a powerful thing. And I want to delve into the luncheon technique, which is something covered in the book. Psychologist Gregory Razron found that his subjects became fonder of the people and things they experienced while they were eating. This is why we take our clients to lunch. This is why I believe throughout the Gospels, you hear stories of Jesus breaking bread with his disciples. Why? He knew the difficult things he was asking them to do. He knew that he was asking them to believe, very difficult things to believe. And he was going to challenge them after his death to go and do extraordinary things, which they did, and some of which were martyred for. But that meal of constantly breaking bread together, constantly being together, eating, the luncheon technique, very, very powerful. That's why in my business practice and in our coaching system, we're always encouraging people to have what we call business bites, taking someone for a coffee, taking someone for a lunch as a celebration on occasion, taking your very best clients to a dinner, or even bringing them into your home and hosting a special dinner for them, doing client parties, that kind of thing. Intuitively, I knew that to be the case. Intuitively, I learned this and I did this. And then sure enough, we find out there's a whole science behind it. People have been studying it. Here's the dynamic. We're in such a big damn hurry in our life today. How about we slow down and break bread with people, connect with people? Maybe we need to do it with our relationships. You know, one of the dynamics when COVID hit for my family is everybody was home. And one of the magical parts of lockdown orders for my family was that we were having dinner together every single night. People taking turns and who made a meal, little competitions breaking out between the boys and the girls, and just something we really looked forward to. And in the midst of a difficult time that was hard on everybody and sickness and death and unemployment and all these things, there was a sense of, wow, there's some really good things coming out of this. And one of it was breaking bread together. Powerful stuff. The last part about likability is we want to do business with people we like. We're more likely to buy from someone we like than someone we dislike. Now, this is very important. Likeability is not everything. So somebody can like you, and it doesn't mean they will do business with you. It's your character and your competence. They have to know you're good. Are you good at what you do? Do you care about me? Back to those same principles I've been teaching for a long time. But let me say this. If the competence is equal, likeability is absolutely the game-changing reason that people will make the decision. All things being equal, if you're good, if they're good, but they like you, they're going to do business with you because they like you and they think you're good at what you do. Tim Sanders says, basically, likability comes down to creating positive emotional experiences in others. When you make others feel good, they tend to gravitate to you. Tim wrote the great book, Love is a Killer App. Travis Bradbury, who wrote Emotional Intelligence 2.0, said, few things kill likability as quickly as arrogance. Great quote. I love that. Dale Carnegie said, You can make more friends in two months by becoming interested in other people than you can in two years trying to get other people interested in you. Now, this goes back to what Bob Bodine said in our recent interview, that people are not trying to find if you're interesting. They're trying to find out if you're interested in them. Now, let's just time out for a second. And how about, as we're talking about influence, we have social media influencers. And this whole cadre of what's become this business, this dynamic, where everybody's doing video and everybody's on social media, and it's all about yourself. It's all about being an influencer. Well, let me tell you, 
It's boring. It's narcissistic. It's all the bloody same. It's brutal. Who cares? There was a season that that made sense. There was a season the Kardashians came out and, you know, they're very attractive gals and they got these kind of quasi-celebrity behind them and connected to O.J. Simpson. And the next thing you know, there's a TV show. So they were mildly interesting and they were on the cutting edge of this and they became influencers. So next thing you know, their hair, how they wear their hair, people start wearing their hair that way. They wear this makeup, people start wearing the makeup and it turned into big business, big business. So everybody follows along, right? There's 5% who are initiators and 95% that just go along with it. So let me tell you this. If you want to be an initiator and not follow the crowd, just go along with everybody else, why don't you be interested in people instead of trying to be interesting? And that's where real influence comes from. Powerful stuff. Let me tell you a little story. I had been on the road four or five days back on the East Coast, you know, really trying hard to get home, finish up an event, get on a plane, haul home, touchdown. Here's the thing is, and if anybody's ever traveled a lot, coming home to your family, they get on without you and they're all up to their life. So I'm expecting just like when they were small kids come in the door, daddy, daddy, all the kids are going to run up, jump around, embrace me. How you doing? Da, 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 roll around on the floor, tell stories, hang out, have a great time, put them all to bed. Well, by this stage, the kids are getting a little older. Everybody's doing their thing. So here I am. I've just spent two days on stage. I've just traveled across the country. I just touched down. I got a three-hour time difference. Get in the car, pull into the house, pull in the bags, and then my phone dings. And Beverly goes, oh, by the way, kids are all over at their friend's house, and we have two guests in town. Oh, you kidding me. Are you serious? Like, I am exhausted. The one thing I was looking forward to is kissing my wife and hanging out with my kids for a few minutes before I like would collapse and go to sleep. And instead, we have these two gals who are friends of friends. And they're two gals. They're from New York. They're on their Thelma and Louise trip, right? So they've flown out to California and they're going to go and they went to Rodeo Drive and they're going to see the sights. And now they're down in San Diego and they were friends of friends. They kind of dropped in on Beverly. She's kind of thrown something together for them last minute. I walk in, they've had their meal, they're having a glass of wine, I'm in my suit, tie is down, the bedraggled seminar speaker ready to collapse, and these gals are all about having a conversation. I'm exhausted, so I used a technique, okay? I don't really, I want to be polite, I want to be a good host, and I don't have much in the tank. So I just start asking them a bunch of questions about themselves. And then when I'd ask them more questions, they'd answer and talk. And then I'd answer some more and tell me about this. And okay, and tell me about that. And I, so I'd ask three or four questions and they'd talk for 20 minutes, right? And go back and forward and join them in a glass of wine and whatever else. Well, after about an hour of this, I made my apologies. Hey, you know, I'm on a three-hour time zone difference. It's pretty late back there. Took a shower, go to bed, unconscious. The next morning, Beverly wakes up and she goes, I got to admit, you're, you're pretty good. I go, what are you talking about? She goes, I knew you didn't want to be there, and I knew you weren't up for company last night. She said, both those women said, he's the most interesting man I've ever met. Your husband is the best conversationalist I've ever met and the most interesting person I've ever met. Now, here's the thing. I never said a word about myself. I asked them questions about themselves. Now, I was genuine. I was genuine. I was tired, but I, all I did was ask them questions about themselves. And it's amazing how interesting people find you when you're interested in them. Why don't you try that once? 
once you ask people, like I'm genuinely a curious person and I'm genuinely interested in people and I really believe in being present with the people I'm at. So even on one cylinder, for those people, I was the most interesting man in the world because I took an interest in them. So likability. We all want to be like. Remember the luncheon technique, breaking bread with people, family, friends, or if it's in business, sit down and break bread with people. Slow down and break bread with people. It's very powerful. And then remember, we want to do business with people we like. So let's be that person. The next piece here we want to talk about is leadership. And again, some of these things are directly out of the book, and some are my own derivatives of content and insight I took from the book. And this would be one of those. So on the leadership side, actions speak louder than words. I'm going to say kids don't hear a word you say, and it's important to lead yourself first. We all kind of know this, that actions speak louder than words, but in our world today, words speak louder than words. But profound influence is, let's do it, let me show you, I'll go first. You don't lead from behind, you lead from the front. I've never asked anyone at Buffini Company to do something I wasn't willing to do, and I always go first. As a leader, it's just real important that you lead from the front. You lead by example. The great Albert Schweitzer, who got some great quotes from him, said, the three most important ways to lead by example are by example, by example, and by example. He said, example is not the main thing in influencing others. It is the only thing. I truly believe that. You know, I can't hear what you're saying. I'm too busy watching what you're doing. And that's what Ralph Waldo Emerson said over 100 years ago. What you do speaks so loud, I cannot hear what you say. And that kind of falls into my next point I want to talk about in regards to influence. When you're a parent, you go through many different stages. Initially, you're protector and caretaker, your teacher, trainer. Then it becomes more of a coach relationship. And then it becomes friendship and influence. You know, so many people make the mistake, they want friendship and influence before their teacher and trainer or holding the kids accountable. I'll tell you this true story. We had a kind of a, a meal here as our kids were going off to college and the nest was about to be fully empty for myself and Beverly. I, we just went around, you know, having a conversation and we don't have casual conversation in our home. And I said, if you guys were going to say what's the best thing as parents we've done for you guys, what would you say it is? Giving our whole life to our kids. I was surprised by the answers. They all were some form of, you didn't really let us have our own way all the time. You know, and it was even some of my most free-spirited kids who kind of appreciated the guidelines, that they knew the reasons why, but when we said no and how it was in their best interest ultimately. Many parents make the mistake they want to be their kids' friends first, and I just think you get to be your kids' friends last if you do it right. I really believe that kids don't hear a word you say. What you do is much more powerful. In fact, I believe what we do in moderation, our kids do to excess. And so important to lead by example. And I know that's a heavy load. And I'm not talking about perfection. And I'm not talking about, you know, you need to be wrapped up in a psychologist's chair, fearful of everything you do that could be a mistake and so on and so forth. You know, if you do it right, there's grace. If you do it right, there's transparency. You know, my kids are fully aware of my own awareness of my own flaws. I'm very candid with my kids when I come up short. Because very easy for my kids growing up to think dad was 10 feet tall and bulletproof. Oh, he's the immigrant story, came here with nothing and built the fortune and he goes on stage and all the people listen to him and yada, yada. Very candid with my kids on not only where I've been, but where I'm at now and what I'm working on now. And I think that speaks volumes to them. But they're too busy watching you, you know? Joe DiMaggio, the great baseball player, said a person always doing his or her best becomes a natural leader 
just by example. There's a great thought in that. Just do your best. And doing your best is a day-by-day decision. Forget what you've done. Can you do your best today? Just do your best. And have grace for yourself. And know that in doing your best, your kids can always say, man, my mom and dad did their best. Okay? John Quincy Adams said, if your actions inspire others to dream more, learn more, do more, and become more, you're a leader. Isn't that really the essence of the kind of influence we're talking about? The influence of your team? I see people all the time in our space in real estate and people will get a real estate team and they want them generating leads and doing the activities and so on and so forth. You got to lead by example. They got to see you doing that stuff. They got to see you doing it. And that's where the last part of this leadership piece comes in, which is you got to lead yourself first. You've heard me say it before. You got to put your own oxygen mask on first before you put your oxygen mask on your kids or those you're caring for. I just think it's a big deal. We actually did a podcast on this episode 227 called Leader's Edge, where I really went into this in depth. But I think leading yourself, managing yourself, you can't manage yourself and lead yourself. How can you manage anybody else? So how do you do this? Well, are you leading yourself in regards to your schedule? Are you leading yourself in regards to your habits? Are you leading yourself in regards to your pursuits of those things that are the highest and best use of yourself? Are you leading yourself by being kind to yourself? Are you leading yourself by being gracious to yourself? Are you leading yourself by doing good for yourself? And so I find that if I'm kind to myself and gracious to myself, I can be kind and gracious to others. Martin Luther King said, a genuine leader is not a searcher for consensus, but are a molder of consensus. When you're leading yourself, you're able to bring this all together. Ronald Reagan said, the greatest leader is not necessarily the one who does the greatest things. He's the one that gets the people to do the greatest things. Leading by example, then you can inspire, then you can influence, then you can champion people. Douglas MacArthur said, a true leader has the confidence to stand alone, the courage to make tough decisions, and the compassion to listen to the needs of others. He does not set out to be a leader, but becomes one by the equality of his actions and the integrity of his intent. And there we get back to something that's very, very important. As we talk about this psychology of influence and the principles of persuasion, that it's got to be with good intent. Last thing we're going to cover here is scarcity. And scarcity has this dynamic of perspective. Most people, when it comes to scarcity, this fear of loss becomes the motivator. Okay? Now again, I've seen this done badly. Here, I'll give you an example from the real estate industry. The cheapest, lowest form of influence there is in real estate is this. Someone else is writing an offer, so you'd better write an offer when no one else is writing an offer. Now, in today's world, they probably are writing an offer because the market's so hot. But when somebody does that and gets a result, they become a cheap carny agent, a cheap carny salesperson. They become a cheap carny act. And when you lay down your pillow at night, you don't have real success. You don't have real success. You have real doubt. You have real doubt that you can do it the right way. Let me tell you, it's too high a price. If I was to embody my whole career, I think people would be shocked by what I would say I might be most proud of. I've received thousands and thousands of letters every month for 20 years. Our company's mission is to impact and improve the lives of people. We have hundreds and thousands of stories of people's lives that have been transformed. For me, I think if I think about my career in hindsight, the thing I might be most proud of is that no matter what the company's need was or where we were economically or what pressures I was under to perform, I never, ever, while on stage, went beyond pure expose of what we have and what we offer. I never went beyond that. I never used a technique 
of persuasion to manipulate people, to get people to make a decision to sign up for a coach or a training program or this thing. Never. I never did that in my whole life. And I will tell you, of all the things, this has only been a recent conversation I had with somebody because I don't really think about it. But I was having a conversation. Somebody said, if you're talking about the thing you're most proud of, it's the discipline. I demonstrated to myself that no one else knows. I'm telling you guys, and there's a lot of people who work for me be hearing for this the very first time ever. People who know me well, friends know me well, would never even know this thought existed. But the discipline I exercised in my own life to do it the right way, that is what meant the most to me. Now, as it turns out, it attracted the right type of people because people resonated with that. People knew they had to kind of make a decision on their own to be coached. They had to have the courage to do it. And by the way, that's the only way you really can do a coaching relationship. It can't be, oh, I got hopped up, uh, motivated at some seminar. I got emoted and I made this decision, a knee-jerk reaction. And now I got to live with this coaching. No, because in coaching, you come home with the client. You now roll up your sleeves and you partner with them. I never really had thought too much about this. But again, I was interviewed recently and somebody said, what are you most proud of? And that was it. And it was kind of a shock to me that that was even a thought in my own head. But what I will say to you is the power of doing the right things in the right way with the right intent and maintaining that standard for yourself is a deposit in your own mind, in your own heart. That'll be the making of you. Scarcity is a very powerful influence for people. Make sure you do it in the right way. Make sure you do it in a true way. So eventually, here's what happened. Buffini and Company did become so successful and did become so in demand that I would go and stand on stage and there'd be 3,000 people in the room and I'd say, guys, I got good news and bad news. I got some coaching spaces available and I have 75 of them. And that if 2,000 of you folks wanted to sign up for coaching today, I wouldn't have space for you. But it was true. And of course, what would happen because of scarcity? There'd be people lined about the door. And so for several years in our company's history, we had a waiting list to get into our coaching program. I have an event called Peak Experience. It's been sold out a year in advance since 2003. And it's the scarcity that drives that. But it's an honest scarcity because guess what? There's only so many people allowed to be able to sit into this powerful event. Same with our mastermind event. Sold out 16 out of the last 17 years. So scarcity is a very, very powerful thing. And when you arrive at it through authentic means with the right intent, now all of a sudden it makes you high demand. And all of a sudden it makes you even more valuable scarcity is what makes things valuable, right? That's what we know about gold. That's what we know about diamonds. Scarcity is what makes something valuable. Caldini says, the idea of potential loss plays a large role in human decision-making. In fact, people seem to be more motivated by the thought of losing something than by the thought of gaining something of equal value. So you got to find an appropriate way. And that's why if when I was in real estate, I wouldn't tell people there's another offer coming in or so on and so forth, but I would tell them the story like I shared, hey, here's the guy that I know that says, I wish I'd have bought that corner lot 20 years ago for 39 grand, but I didn't. And I only ever hear stories of regret. I never hear stories of, I bought this and I regret buying it. It was always, I missed out on the opportunity. G.K. Chesterton said, the way to love anything is to realize that it might be lost. Good thing to think about. Arthur Schopenhauer said, mostly it is lost which teaches us about the worth of things. So again, it's a very influential thing. Another thing I would share as we finish up here today is when you're persuading people, they do need to know the score. You have to communicate the expectations. You have to be clear about limiting factors, whether it be inventory, whether it be time frame. Never, ever, ever, if you're in sales, if you're in service, never create an artificial scarcity. Never create something that's not integrous. 
but you need to find a way to communicate with people in regards to what level of scarcity there is. You need to let them imagine what it's like if they don't do it. So for me personally, the biggest influence for me was when I learned how to set goals. And I learned how to set goals from a man called Lou Tice, the late Lou Tice. And Lou Tice would have you set a goal and you'd write it out as if it had already happened. So you'd pick a date out in the future and you'd write it in a narrative form as if it had already happened and you were writing a letter to your best friend. Here's all these fantastic things that would happen. And then he would have you do this. What's the price of completion? And then what happens if I don't achieve this goal? And so here's an example of the very first goal I ever wrote. And I hadn't been home in a couple of years. I'm a working real estate agent, newly married, new son. It was the first grandchild. And I wrote a goal about taking a trip to Ireland and having all my family there, paying for everybody's trip to get home and renting a cottage down by the sea in a place called La Hinch, which was a place we used to go to when we were kids. So I write out this goal at a future date as if it's already happened. And it's visceral and it's real to me and it's really a cool thing. And here's my mom and dad and they're seeing their grandson for the first time. And Beverly's come to Ireland. She kind of sees where I'm from and we're able to connect at an even deeper level. And all my family's there and we're having the crack, as they say, a lot of fun. And everybody's telling stories. And this was a very, very moving goal. But it wasn't until I followed Lou Tice's technique to what's the price of not completion? What happens if you don't achieve this goal? And the first thing that came to my mind is, what if my parents passed away and never got to see their only grandchild? I'm going to tell you when I wrote out what could happen if I didn't achieve the goal. You need to know within 24 hours, I booked this trip. I booked this trip. I booked it for everybody. Now, my wife and I just bought a house. We had just bought a house. We'd used up a lot of our savings. I booked this trip when I didn't have the money for this trip, and I put it on an American Express card. But here's what happened. Up until that point in time in my career, I had never sold more than six homes in a month. When I wrote out the cost of non-completion, the emotion to me, the scarcity of the prospect that my parents could pass away without ever seeing their grandchild, that emotion drove me to the point that I took action right away. And I did the unthinkable, scary thing. And I booked this whole trip, booked the house, booked the flights, everything. And I had 45 days, 15 days until the bill came in and 30 days to pay it. I sold 13 homes that month. I'd never sold more than six before. The following month, I sold 12. And what happened is, That persuasion of scarcity challenged me to go and do something that I didn't know I could do. In fact, one of my mentors told me, yeah, you do more than six deals in a month, your your arms and legs start to fall off in real estate. Well, guess what? My arms and legs didn't fall off and I found out I could do a lot more and I could do it better. I just needed the proper motivation to do it. And scarcity was what got me there. So we talked about psychology of influence and the six principles of persuasion. We talked about reciprocity, commitment, social proofing, likability, leadership, and scarcity. A lot of heavy content, but some things really worth taking on board. Now remember the caveat I gave at the beginning. All of these techniques, reciprocity, commitment, and social proofing, likability, leadership, and scarcity must be done with the right intent. And if you have the right heart and the right motives and you go about this the right way, you will be a person of influence. You will become a master of influence, and you'll be a person who influences people for good. And that's my hope and prayer for y'all. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. I hope it's been beneficial to you. It's been fun reading the book and doing the homework for you. I hope it gives you something to think about and something to chew on, and maybe it helps you with your mindset, your motivation, or your methodologies. Great being with you today. I look forward to joining you again. Here's a word from my biggest influence, my mom, Therese. May the road rise up to meet you. And may the wind always be at your back. 
May the rain fall soft upon your fields and the sun shine warm upon your face. And until we meet again, may God hold you in the hollow of his hand. See you next time.